Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures this morning, let me invite you to turn once again to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and to the very last chapter, Acts chapter 28. And I'm going to read aloud from verse 17 unto the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 17 to the end of the chapter. Let me invite you as you're able to stand once again in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's word. Acts 28 and verse 17, wherein Luke uh, faithfully recorded. And it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. And when they were come together, he said unto them, men and brethren, Though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, would have let me go, because there was no cause of death in me. But when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar, not that I had aught to accuse my nation of. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you, to see you and to speak with you, Because that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And they said unto him, we neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came, showed or spake any harm of thee. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, And their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. May God bless once again the reading and the hearing of his word. And let's join together in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, as we stand before the open Bible this morning, reading and hearing thy word. We ask of thee illumination that you would give us light and by thy light we might see the light of Christ. Open our eyes, unstop our ears, loosen our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're returning today to the book of Acts and having completed a long series through the Gospel of Matthew, looking foundationally at the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been appropriate then to go over to the book of Acts, because Acts tells us what happened after Christ was gloriously raised, after he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and how the Gospel was taken by the apostles uh, to the uttermost part of the earth. And so I've suggested that Acts 1.8 is something like an outline for the entirety of the book of Acts. As Christ told the disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And then we look at the book of Acts, what we see is that plan played out. 
As the gospel is preached first by Peter at Pentecost in Acts 2 to the the men who were in uh, Jerusalem for that feast. And so the gospel, uh, there's witness given to it in Jerusalem and Judea. 3,000 men are added to the church in Jerusalem. And then we, we looked at Acts 8 and Philip. Uh, the associate of the apostles, one of the seven men of Jerusalem. He preached the gospel in Samaria. And then we also looked at how he preached a sermon to one man, the Ethiopian eunuch. Peter preaches to thousands, and Philip preaches with equal zeal to just one man. Numbers mean nothing to us, don't they? And then we saw in Acts 17 how Paul would go to Athens, that great uh, center of philosophy and learning, And he had preached first in the synagogue, but then he went out into the Agora, the marketplace. There were Epicurean, Stoic philosophers, and he preached Christ unto them. And so the gospel is taken from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we saw last Lord's Day that there was a turning point in Acts 21 as Christ was arrested in Jerusalem. And then from Acts 21 here to the end, Paul is a prisoner And he has an opportunity to stand before authorities. He gives an apology for his faith in Christ. But he's also preaching the gospel uh, to those who will hear. And and as he was before the Roman governor Festus, realizing that the Jews were trying to arrange for him to be assassinated by wanting him to go from Caesarea to Jerusalem, he said, I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he had that right. And so he was transported uh, to be taken uh, from Caesarea to Rome. And in fact, if you look at Acts 27 and verse 1, it says, And when it was determined that we should sail unto Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. So he was given into the hands of this Roman centurion, uh, named Julius, pretty good Roman name, and he was to be transported uh, to go to Rome to stand trial before the emperor, before Caesar. And uh, we know that in Acts 27, that it was, a, it was a perilous journey, a harrowing journey that he undertook. While he was on being transported on this journey, uh, his, his ship was caught in a terrible storm. And in the midst of that storm, the angel of God stood by Paul and said to him, fear not. And what is more, the angel told him that all the persons who were on board that ship, according to Acts 27, verse 37, some 276 persons, that not one of those persons would be lost, that all would survive. And indeed, it happened just as the angel of God had revealed it unto Paul. And if you look at Acts 27, And verse 44, the very last verse there, it says, And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. When the ship broke apart, some swam. Some who couldn't swim grabbed onto pieces of the the wreckage. And as the angel of God had told Paul, all 276 persons were saved. And now we come then to Acts 28. And uh, those who had survived the shipwreck, Paul included, they came on shore to an island known as Melita, as it's called here, or or Malta. And so they were able to survive. And from there then, Paul and his companions, including Luke, the man who wrote the book of Acts, they will travel then to Rome. And as we will see, when Paul arrives in Rome, He will be there for two years under house arrest. But while he's there, he will have the opportunity to preach the gospel. Now, if I were to tell you that I wanted to convey to you a story today about an innocent man, a righteous man who was unjustly imprisoned and held for over two years, I would think you would think, well, that's this is a very encouraging story, Pastor. Innocent and righteous man who was imprisoned unjustly for two years. But when we come to the end of this account in Acts 28, 
we see that, that actually there are many things in it that are hopeful and encouraging. And what we see is that even though many men, even men with great power, try to suppress the proclamation of the gospel, and even though they may threaten the, the heralds of the gospel with imprisonment and even death, that they cannot forbid it. They cannot stop it. Remember what Gamaliel, the Pharisee, said in Acts 5. He said, if this thing is not of God, it will fail on its own. But if it is of God, you cannot stop it. And so finally today, we're going we're gonna to come and rest on the very end. If you look at the very last verse, it shows us Paul under house arrest for two years in Acts 28 and verse 31. But he's preaching the kingdom of God, teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. The very last word, Greek word that appears in the book of Acts is an adverb, akolutos. The dictionary would define this word as freely or without hindrance. In the authorized version, this one Greek word is rendered with four English words. No man forbidding him. The central point we would like to meditate upon this morning is what we might call the absolute invincibility or tenacity of the proclamation of the gospel, the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a proclamation that cannot be forbidden. A proclamation that cannot be suppressed. Whatever the circumstances of this age or any other. Well, with that, let's turn now and let's look at our passage. We look at Acts 28. We can divide Acts 28 into two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 16, describes... Paul's journey to Rome after that shipwreck on the island of Melita. And we're going to look a little more cursorily at that first part, verses 1 through 16. The second part is going to be Paul's ministry in Rome. That's what I read, verses 17 through 31. And again, we're going to look briefly at verses 1 through 16 and then hopefully give a bit more attention to verses 17 through 31. Let's begin by looking at the first part, though, Paul's journey from Melita to Rome. As Paul and his companions from the shipwreck came onto the shores of Melita, they were soaking wet, they were probably shivering with cold, and they were graciously met, though, by the local inhabitants. And we see this in verse 2, as Luke says, And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire, and received us everyone because of the present rain and because of the cold. And the term that's rendered here as barbarous people in Greek is barbaroi. Uh, we get the word barbarian. Why did, they, why did the Greek call uh, these people barbarians? Because when they spoke their language, which, which wasn't the cultured Greek, it sounded like bar, 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 bar. You ever heard, listen to a foreigner speak? It's like, to me, it just sounds like somebody saying bar, 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 bar. They're barbarians. But they show no little kindness unto Paul and the other men who come aboard the island. Notice two things about this statement. First of all, notice that Luke, who is writing this, is present there alongside of the Apostle Paul. Because he says, they showed us no little kindness. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but... We know that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And if you look at the beginning of that Gospel in Luke chapter 1, he addresses the Gospel to someone named Theophilus. The term means a lover of God. May have been a man's name, may have been just a cipher for uh, a, a disciple, a Christian. And then if you look at Acts chapter 1 verse 1, you see that Acts was also written for a man named Theophilus. So Luke and Acts were both written for someone named Theophilus. They're written by the same person, Luke the beloved physician, as he's called in Colossians 4.14. And there comes a point in the book of Acts, it happens in Acts chapter 16, 
Where Luke, who had been previously describing everything in the third person, he did this, he did that, they did this. All of a sudden, he starts using the first person plural. It starts in Acts 16 and verse 10. After Paul had the vision of the Macedonian man, he said, come over and help us. At that point, Luke says, and immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia. Assuredly gathering that the Lord had called for us to preach the gospel to them. And from Acts 16 forward, Luke tells us he's there with Paul. So we're reading today here in Acts an eyewitness account of the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And he's also there, as I pointed out, with Paul when Paul was transported from Caesarea to Rome. He was one of those 276 people who washed ashore at Melita. And so he's given us this firsthand account. Secondly, notice what Luke says about these barbarians, these spiritually blind pagans. Paul tells us, or Luke tells us, that they were capable of doing outward acts of kindness. Luke says they showed to Paul no little kindness. Think of people like Mormons. Many are very modest. Many are very wholesome and very kind, even though they are spiritually confused and lost. Though Christ will adorn his saints with the fruit of the Spirit, being a Christian is not merely a matter of outward niceness. As Paul will write in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And yet there's something about these barbarians, who, people who are spiritually blind and their appearance here in this inspired narrative that tells us about God's hardened concern for people like this. For people who don't know, spiritually speaking, their right hand from their left. Further on, we're told here in verse 3 of Acts 28 that Paul was carrying sticks to to throw onto this fire. And as he did so, it says in verse 3 that a viper came out from the heat and fastened on his hand. When the barbarians saw this, they began to say among themselves, according to verse 4, No doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And what we see here is the superstitious mindset of the pagans. They have no concept of a sovereign, personal, almighty God. The God that we meet in the scriptures. The God who declares the end from the beginning as Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 46.10. But they believe in some kind of blind, impersonal force. Maybe something like karma. That somehow arbitrarily or capriciously rewards good and repays evil. They had that pagan mindset which probably inculcates the minds of most secular people today living in our world. To their astonishment, we're told in verse 5, that the Apostle Paul shook off the snake into the fire and felt no harm. There's an interesting connection that's being made here in Acts chapter 28 with the ending of the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 16, verse 18, the Lord Jesus told the apostles that one of the signs that would accompany their ministry is that they would take up serpents. And here is the fulfillment of what Christ had said in Mark 16, 18. When the barbarians see that the apostle Paul was not swollen up and that he did not fall down dead, Luke says in uh, Acts 28, verse 6, that they changed their minds and said that he was a god. And I think as we're reading through this, there more, there's more than one place where we're meant, to, we're meant to smile a little bit. 
What we're being shown is the fickleness and the unstable ways of pagan thinking. One moment he's bitten by a snake, they think he's a murderer. And the next, because he doesn't fall down dead, they think he is a god. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you may remember the account that we didn't look at in this short series in Acts 14 on Paul's first missionary journey when he goes to a place called Lystra. And there's a man there who has been crippled from his mother's womb. And the apostles uh, pray for him. Paul prays for him. And the man is healed. And what happens after that is the people, after this healing, they turn to Paul and Barnabas and they, they begin to worship them as gods and bring them offerings. They say that Barnabas was sort of the strong, silent type. He must be Jupiter. He must be Zeus. And Paul, because he would talk a lot, remember how the pagans called him in Athens a spermologos, a, a babbler, uh, a seed spitter. They say he must be Mercury, the, the spokesperson for the gods. And so they're ready to worship Paul, basically. If you remember in Acts 14, later some Jews come and they rile up the crowd, the town against Paul. And the same people who had been ready to worship Paul, they drag him outside of town and they dropped a stone on him to kill him. And then they left him for dead. But then when his, his followers came around him, the Apostle Paul got up. He rose up and he went on his way. If you look at Acts 14, verses 19 and 20. The response here of the pagans is a reminder that when men do not know the one true God and they are not directed by the scriptures, they are prone to wide swings of sentiment and instability. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that when men depart from belief in the one true God, the problem is not that they believe nothing but that they believe anything and everything. Luke also tells us here in Acts 28 how Paul was received by a chief man of the island. If you look at verse 8, a fellow who was named Publius, and he stayed with him for three days. And while he was there, he saw that this man's father, as Luke puts it, lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux. Underneath the English uh, expression there, a bloody flux is just one Greek word. It's dysenteria. He was sick with dysentery. And Paul came to this man and Luke says in verse 8 that Paul prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. And this also is a fulfillment of what Christ said to the apostles in Mark 16, 18. As he said there, not only will they take up serpents, but he said, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. These are what Paul will call in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, the signs of an apostle. We don't expect such signs today because we don't have living apostles. Those miraculous gifts have ceased. We now have the word written and we have the ordinary means of the preaching of God's word. When word gets out, though, as to what Paul, who can perform the signs of an apostle because he is one, has done, many people on the island come together. Look at verse 9. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. And this reminds us very much of what happened, happened during the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. As in that day with early death and not, no modern medicine, I mean, the, the truly miraculous, a, a man is there who can pray and people could be healed and they, 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 they throng there. And we can imagine, though, surely that Paul not only addressed the needs of the body, but he also addressed the needs of their souls. Here we see an outpouring of the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ upon barbarians, upon pagans who, spiritually speaking, don't know their right hand from their left. And Luke tells us in verse 10 that these grateful islanders honored them with many honors and they gave to them the things necessary for their journey. 
And we're reminded there in verse 10, just a little lesson about stewardship. Those who benefit from the ministry of Christ's servants are to be generous in the support of them. Well, we'll get some of the rest of the account. We're just giving this a brief sketch. After three months, we're told in verses 11 and 12, they sailed to Syracuse. And from there, one of my favorite authorized version terms, they fetched a compass. And they went to a city called Regium, another called Putioli. And in that place, Luke says in verse 14, we found brethren. What does that mean? In that place, they found like-minded believers who called upon and named the name of Christ. Friends, how wonderful it is to encounter Believers, as we take this journey in life. Is it not? They are like an oasis in the desert. That's why we, one reason we come here, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we come to worship the Lord Jesus first and foremost, but we also come because it's encouraging to see the brethren and to be among the brethren. Now on the Italian peninsula, they make their way toward Rome And in verse 15, Luke says that when some of the believers who were in Italy heard that Paul was coming, they came out to him and they came out to these two little towns that are called in verse 15, the Appia, uh, Appii Forum, and a place called the Three Taverns to meet him. And then look at verse 15. It's another one of these places where there's little incidental mention of the importance of Christian community and fellowship and koinonia as when Paul sees these brethren who are coming out, notice it says at the end of verse 15, he thanked uh, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. What we see being relayed here again, as in verse 14 through this historical report is a spiritual truth about the blessings and benefits that come to us by virtue of the fact that we are part of the body of Christ. In our times of trial, when we see the brethren coming out to meet us, we thank God and we take courage. I think I've probably told you the story before about a young man, then a young man, he's about my age now, but Anyways, then a young man in the first church I served as a pastor. And he had been attending the church. He had been a hearer. He had been listening. Uh, He had not yet professed faith, but the Lord had been working in his life. And a trial came up in his life. Uh, His father, for whom he worked, suddenly died. And uh, the night of the funeral home visitation, people from the church came out to stand by him to pray with him. And um, I was talking with him later and he said, he said, you know, he said, when I saw the people from the church coming out to stand with me, I knew I was a believer. I knew I was a believer. And I knew that somehow these people had become my spiritual family. See, Paul wasn't a new convert. He was a veteran apostle. But he was blessed and encouraged by the care and concern shown unto him by God's folk who had come out to meet him. And then Luke says, again, he's with, this is a, this is, he's there, he's an eyewitness. He famously says in verse 16, and when we came to Rome, they, they finally get to Rome. This has been where the whole journey has been heading. And the centurion delivered the, the prisoners to the captain of the guard. And Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. So in those days, there were no prisons. There were not huge incarceration facilities. When you were arrested, you were generally held. There would be a trial that you would be either pronounced innocent or you'd be pronounced guilty and the sentence would be carried out. And so he's, he's, in a, he's being held just waiting to have his appeal heard by the emperor. This shifts now to the second part of our passage, and this is verses 17 through 31. 
Verses 1 through 16 was the journey from Melita to Rome. Now in verses 17 through 31, we have an account of Paul's ministry in Rome. And we can divide this uh, description of Paul's ministry in Rome into three subsections. The first of those is in verses 17 through 22, where we are told that Paul called together what Luke refers to as the chief of the Jews. Now, so this is described in verse 17, and it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. Now, remember, it had been Paul's normal uh, way of operating to, when he went into a town, to first go into the synagogue. But because he is a prisoner, and because he is under arrest, he has to call for the Jewish leaders to come unto him. And as they come together, he sort of gives another speech, another uh, apologia, another defense of his circumstances. I mean, it seems kind of strange, isn't it? He's coming in chains and... Who is this man? What trouble has he caused? And Paul begins to to defend himself before his fellow Jews, the leaders of the Jews, probably because they're the gatekeepers so he can gain the ears of his fellow Jews uh, who are in Rome. It says in verse 17, And when they were come together, he said unto them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or customs or our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem, into the hands of the Romans. And so he declares forthrightly uh, his innocence, that he's done nothing wrong. And then he says in verse 18 that even the Roman authorities had wanted to, had recognized his innocence, much as Pilate had recognized the innocence of Christ when Christ was on trial. He says, who, when they had examined me, would have let me go because there was no cause of death in me. But, he adds in verse 19, because of the intrigues of his fellow Jews, he had been forced to appeal unto Caesar. Verse 19, but when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar. Not that I had aught to accuse my nation of. They shouldn't think that he was coming to bring some malicious charges against his kinsmen according to the flesh. Finally, then he declares unto them in verse 20, for this cause, therefore, have I called you to see you and to speak with you because that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. Paul's consistent argument the whole time he was on trial from Acts 21 to verse to chapter 28 has been that the opposition that has come up against him from his fellow Jews has been because of his belief in the resurrection. The hope of Israel. Remember, I think we made mention of this last time in Acts chapter 23 when Paul was placed before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. In Acts 23 verse 6, he said he's there. He was there because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. He said that I am called into question. And last time we saw in Acts 26 verse 6 also, that when he stood before the Jewish king Agrippa, he had said at that point, And now I stand and am judge for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. He was telling them that he had been arrested for his belief in the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead. Now we know that by this, Paul meant that he had been opposed because he had been preaching the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That after Christ's atoning death upon the cross, he had been gloriously raised. But he's cloaking it here to say, I'm, I'm being held because of the resurrection. Because many Jews, including the Pharisees, believed there would be a resurrection at the end of the ages. Paul, the early Christians, simply believed that that, that had been uh, portended through the raising of Christ from the dead, who is the first fruits of the resurrection. In Titus 2.13, Paul will describe believers as those looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul believed in the resurrection and the ascension of Christ and that Christ would come again at the end of the ages in power and glory 
And at that time, all men would be raised either to experience as Christ himself taught in John 5, 28 and 29. They would either experience the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation. These Jewish leaders might not have realized it, but Paul was beginning to evangelize them. He's dropping in little truth bombs. I'm here because of the hope of Israel. I'm here because of my belief in the resurrection. You believe in the resurrection, don't you? Well, there's just a little part of it you haven't heard yet. The first fruits of that resurrection is the raising of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. He's dropping in little truth bombs. He's spreading gospel seeds in hope they might find a resting place in the hearts of his hearers. Some of you are doing do that with your family members in the places where you work, in your classrooms. Yeah, I don't believe this life is all there is. Do you? Uh, I was reading my Bible this morning and I came across this passage. Do you ever read the Bible? I mean, what, what is the meaning of life after all? I mean, we, we, we live and then we, we pay our taxes and we die. And then what? What is the chief end of man? And here, here's Paul just throwing out these little truth bombs. In verse 21, we're told that they respond and they said unto him, We neither receive letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. Now, this is interesting because this was really an amazing providence of God. Because remember, the people in Jerusalem hated Paul. They were plotting to kill him. But in the providence of God, none of these evil reports had come unto the Jews in Jerusalem. And so they had been sheltered from hearing anything bad about Paul or these specific, as we'll see, they've heard bad things about Christianity. They've heard it's a sect spoken against, but they haven't heard anything badly about, about Paul. And, and, and then look at what they say to Paul. Look at verse 22. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For a preacher, that's like having a softball thrown right down the middle of the plate. We desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. And so they're, they're going to give to Paul an invitation to speak to them. What is this hope of Israel for which... Uh, you've come into such trouble and you've come to Rome in chains. They're willing to hear. We desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. Do you remember last week when we were looking at Paul's message before Agrippa that he had said to Agrippa in chapter 26, verse 3, wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. And I said, that's what every preacher essentially says before he preaches a sermon. Think about when Philip uh, was uh, speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch and the eunuch said, uh, and, and he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, how can I accept some man should guide me? One passage we haven't looked at in this short series is in Acts 13 on Paul's first missionary journey when he goes into the synagogue at a place called Pisidian Antioch. He goes in with Barnabas, and according to Acts 13, 15, the, the leaders of the synagogue turn to Paul and Barnabas, and they say, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And all of those occasions, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, how can I understand this unless someone guides me? Um, at Pisidian Antioch, if you have any word of exhortation for us, please tell us. And here, this question that, that is, is coming on the lips of these Jewish, the chief of the Jews in Rome, we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. That is a reminder that the Lord is often at work to open doors that we never thought would be opened to us. We should be prepared 
when what we think will be a closed door is opened for us. And there are people who say, I desire to hear what you think about this. What do you think about this? What are your spiritual beliefs about this? Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer, an apologia, to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Notice also in verse 22 that though they had received no evil report about Paul, they had heard that this fledgling Christian movement that they call a sect, and that uh, English translation comes from a Greek word that's the root of our word actually for heresy. They said the sect we know is everywhere spoken against. We are reminded again of the mysterious ways of our God. Sometimes he uses the words that are spoken against the faith by unbelievers. Sometimes he uses criticisms of the faith as a spur to make men curious about what this faith is that is everywhere spoken against. So when sometimes we might feel beleaguered and it seems like there are so many misrepresentations of Christianity out there. Sometimes God uses that. Sometimes he uses those who speak against the faith because it sparks curiosity. I want to find out for myself what exactly is it that these people believe? Particularly in these days, you believe everything you hear? We desire to hear what you think about these things. And so we see the the sovereignty of God at work, even in the criticisms Against the faith. There's a theme that's, that permeates this entire narrative. And it, it's about it's a theme of the importance of resting in the sovereignty of God in all things. Including the propagation of the faith. Evangelism itself. Trusting in the Lord to be at work. The second of three subsections. After the, he calls together the Jewish leaders. The second is. The Jews set aside an appointed day to listen to Paul. And so uh, we learn of this in verse 23. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging. And so the day is the time is set for Paul to tell about the sect that is everywhere spoken against. And there's something here in what we learn in verse 23 that we've noted about the book of Acts in general, and that is on one hand, the book of Acts gives us historical descriptions. It is descriptive of what happened to Paul. And we believe what is recorded here is exactly what happened because Luke is there. He's an eyewitness. And the Holy Spirit has inspired this work. So everything in it is true. It's infallible. But it's also meant to be prescriptive. It is, it is setting a pattern or a template That believers are to follow. So it describes what Paul did, but it's a template for us to follow. Paul has this opportunity to speak to people on this appointed day about Christ. And and what what is it that he will have to say? Does does he give them basically a glorified TED talk about how to have a good life, how to manage your finances, uh, how to raise your kids or something like that? When he he wants to get to the heart of the matter, what is it that he has to say? Look at verse 23. To whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. Notice two things. He spoke on two related subjects from one source, Scripture. First, he expounded and testified the kingdom of God. You might remember that Matthew had summarized the preaching of the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 4, 17 as repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. And with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the word being made flesh, God's rule, God's kingdom broke into this world. 
And when he comes again with power and glory on that last day, his kingdom will be fully realized and it will triumph over everything. So he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And then secondly, it says he was persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. What do you think he had to say about the Lord Jesus? What do you think he spoke about? There are many things he could have spoken about. Perhaps many things he did speak about. But I think we can surmise that if you, had, if you gave Paul time to give an elevator pitch on what you should know about Jesus, where, what would he say? Well, he told us in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, when he told the Corinthians, this is the gospel I preached to you. This is the gospel I received and which I handed on to you. First, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Secondly, that he was buried. Thirdly, that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And fourthly, he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve. He preached the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this also from other things, that other descriptions of Paul's ministry. We're talking a little bit about the, his ministry in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. If you look at Acts 13... Uh, Verses 28 through 30, it describes his preaching there. This is what he said on that occasion of Jesus. He said, and though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. What did he have to say about Christ? He died on the cross. He was placed in the tomb, but he rose again. What did he say before Agrippa? Do you remember this? We looked at it last week. In Acts 26, verses 22 and 23, as he described his ministry, he said, Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead. Christ was the first who rose from the dead after suffering on the cross. And guess what, friends? The standard for faithful Christian preaching has not changed in 2,000 years. It's still the same. Proclaim the death of Christ on the cross for sinners and proclaim His glorious resurrection that we might walk in newness of life in Him. What was the response to Paul's preaching? We've noted this several times. There's always a response to preaching of the gospel. And typically there's a mixed response. There's some who are left cold and different, bored by it. And there are others who, like Wesley, their hearts are strangely warmed when they hear about Christ crucified and risen. And so look at verse 24. What's the response? And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. Christianity is very simple. It's a binary worldview. You hear the gospel, and you either believe it, or you don't. There's no middle ground. There are no almost persuaded Christians. There are no halfway Christians. There's no halfway covenant. Some believed and some did not. And what we see here too is that our purpose, we have no control over those reactions, do we? Responses. Our call is to be faithful in placing Christ before men. The results, the work is God's. And then Luke tells us that Paul said something in the midst of this meeting that basically broke the meeting up. What's the thing that he said? Well, one of the scriptures that he appealed to, we know, was from Isaiah. It was from Isaiah 6, which is the the, the calling of Isaiah to be a prophet. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. The Lord told him, go to the people. He said, I can't go. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of the people of unclean lips. And his lips were touched and he was commissioned to go to the people. And 
Paul had apparently quoted from Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 11. And he had taken the call that was given to Isaiah and he applied it to himself as, a, as an apostle of Christ. Verse 26, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. What the Apostle Paul said that broke up the meeting was, listen, you can hear me outwardly and not hear me inwardly. And he basically accused those who remained in their unbelief of of having their hearts waxed gross, their ears being dull, their eyes being closed. Paul is here addressing what we might call the mystery of unbelief. Why are some so closed, so dull, so blind to the gospel that we can see so clearly? Paul, so, Paul will also write of this in 1 Corinthians 2.14 where he said, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The thing that really set them off after that was what he said next in verse 28 to the unbelieving Jews. He said, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. If you won't listen, if you won't receive it, God will send His salvation to pagan Gentiles Men like those bar, 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 barbarians on the island of Melita who've never read the scriptures and don't know anything about this one true God. If you reject it, salvation will come to them. Was Paul saying here that from this point forward, no Jews would be saved? Certainly not. Paul was a Jew himself. And remember, on that very day, according to verse 24, some of them had believed. It is perhaps, though, as Paul describes it in Romans 11.11, that through their fall, through the rejection of many Jews, salvation is come to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. And this indeed really sent these men to thinking. Look, verse 29, it said they departed and they had great reasoning among themselves. Sometimes uh, the best uh, discussion are the ones after a good sermon. It sent them reasoning among themselves. The third and final subsection of our passage is in the final two verses where Paul spends two years preaching and teaching in Rome. Many people over the years have expressed frustration with the ending of the book of Acts. This is the way it ends. It seems sort of abrupt. We're never told about his trial before Caesar. Although when he was on the ship in Acts 27, 24, the angel of God told him he would stand before Caesar. So we know it came to pass. But it's never recorded for us. Again, the scriptures don't tell us everything we wish we knew. It tells us what we need to know. That's the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture. Sufficient as it is. Some have suggested that he was put on trial at the end of those two years before Nero and he was put to death. Others suggest that he appeared before Caesar and was, was let go and he was free and he actually went to Spain, which is what he wanted to do when he wrote to the Romans, thinking he was going to go there as a missionary and then be sent on by them to Spain. And he had another season of life in which he preached the gospel and some believe he wrote the pastoral epistles during that period. And then he was arrested again, taken back to Rome. And the second time, then he was put to death. Some uh, think that Luke had perhaps hoped to write a third volume. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. And maybe he's going to write a third account. And it would include Paul's further ministry. And then give an account of his death. His martyrdom. But God did not permit that. We don't know if that was the plan. But we, we do know there's, there's no third volume written by Luke within the scriptures. Uh, 
This was not the Spirit's intent. We know that the book ends, Acts ends, just as the Spirit of God would have it. With Paul dwelling, according to verse 30, for two whole years in his own hired house, and receiving all that came in unto him. And they were, those people were coming and saying, we want to hear what you think about this. He said, oh, I'll be happy to talk to you about this. Let's open our Bibles. Let's look at Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53. Let's look at what the scriptures say about one who will be sent to suffer. And then who will be raised. And the last verse what did he do during that time? Did Paul sit around in prison saying, oh my, look at, look at, God, what have you, why haven't you helped me more? Why did you do more for me? No. He was content in Christ. Opportunity. Well, opportunity, all these people will come to me and they will hear, hear from me. What did he do during that time? He was preaching the kingdom of God. And teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there are just two descriptions of how he did that. He did it with all confidence. Paul didn't have his fingers crossed saying, I wish this is true. I hope this is true. This might be true. He preached confidently. And the very last word, that one little adverb, no man forbidding him. Nobody's stopping him from preaching and teaching about Christ. Now, friends, we work through the passage. There are many things we can take from this chapter. Hopefully the Spirit has already made some connections for you. We learn of the scope of the church's mission. That the gospel goes out for pagan barbarians with all their fickle superstitions. And it's also for those who have perhaps been raised knowing the scriptures but who have not yet had the gospel penetrate their hearts and lives, pierce their hearts and lives. We learn that God is pleased to use means and that he may well open doors that we believe would be closed. In the end, we are being taught that God himself is sovereign in salvation and it is often a mystery to us as to whose eyes will be opened, whose ears will be unstopped, whose hearts will be spiritually circumcised. Our task is simply to be faithful, to preach and teach the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Finally, we are told that this proclamation cannot be forbidden by any man by any power or by any nation. Let us not forget this if we feel discouraged at the hearing or lack of hearing, the reaction or lack of reaction the gospel receives in our day. For to attempt to hold back the proclamation of God's word would be like going to the ocean and attempting to hold back the waves. As Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 55, God will send forth his word and it will accomplish the purposes for which he has sent it and it will not return to him void. Amen? Amen. We invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, would you give me thanks for this testimony that we have heard today. Let it be an encouragement unto us that the gospel is going out and it cannot be stopped. It cannot be forbidden. It is going out all over the world right now. It's going into North Korea. It's going into many Islamic nations. It's going into secularized Europe and North America. The gospel is is going out. And wherever it is preached, it will have a reaction. And there will be some who will hear and who will be, be drawn with cords of kindness unto Christ. 
And so help us in this generation, the setting you've given to us, wherever we live and work and the churches in which we serve, those of us who are part of this church, help us to be confident and to know that thy word uh, will not be forbidden, but it will accomplish the purposes for which you have sent it. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.